This episode was recorded before the most recent earthquake in Haiti in January of 2022. When you are standing in front of a family who lost their house, who lost a loved one due to the disaster, who have lost their means of income, you want to help. You want to do everything to help. But from a developmental standpoint and perspective, you also want to keep in mind, well, I don't want to overwhelm them because we do not want to build or reinforce the sense of dependency. So on one hand, you want to help and they need help. But on the other hand, you have to keep in mind the long-term impact. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast, where we discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. I'm Shalane, and joining me today as a guest co-host is Allison Alley, the President and CEO of Compassion Canada. After spending more than a decade in leadership roles in the marketplace, Allison joined Compassion in 2012 to establish the Advocacy Department and became the organization's fourth president and CEO in October of 2019. Allison and her husband, Tommy, live in Ontario and have two daughters. Allison, it's great to have you here again, this time as a guest co-host, and I would love it if you would be so kind as to introduce our guest today. Oh, absolutely, Shalane. It is a joy to be with you and to facilitate an important conversation together. So today we're going to be talking about Haiti and the aftermath and recovery from the August 14th earthquake. So for your uh, listeners' sake, there was a 7.2 magnitude earthquake that hit Haiti's western region, resulting in devastating loss of life, injuries, infrastructure damage, And it's been a layered crisis for that country because their president was assassinated in July. Mm -hmm. There's been um, an ongoing fuel shortage and political instability. And of course, as we know, the multifaceted reality of Mm COVID-19. And so I am delighted to introduce our guest today, uh, who is Edward Lesseg. And Edward is the vice president of the Latin America and Caribbean region at Compassion International, a role that he has held since 2007. Uh, He holds a bachelor's degree in Bible education, a master's degree in organizational leadership, and Edward is a passionate advocate of the local church, believing with us at Compassion that it is the greatest force to change the course of every form of poverty that our world is experiencing. Mm. Uh, Edward was born in Haiti and now calls South Florida home with his wife, Gina. Uh, So, Edward, welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. Well, thank you, Alison. It's a joy and a privilege to be here with you. Yes, welcome here, Edward. It's uh, wonderful that we can have this conversation. And we are starting season two, asking every guest the same question. And this time the question is, what does it mean to thrive? How would you answer that question? Wow, this is a very good question. In fact, it goes to the heart of who we are Hmm. as a ministry and what we want to accomplish in the lives of the children and youth who participate in our program. Indeed, we want to see our graduates become thriving followers of Jesus, making a difference in their context. Hmm. 
The word thriving was selected very carefully and intentionally by our program team. Hmm. It represents a concept that has become very common in the field of human, human development in general and child and youth development in particular. In developmental domains, thriving has been defined as a developmental and growth-oriented process. Therefore, in our context, it is important to clarify what we want our youth to grow toward as mm -hmm. we understand thriving. Mm -hmm. We chose this word, thriving, also because it can be tested. Hmm. It can be monitored, assessed, it can be measured, and eventually reported on. So for compassion, thriving encompasses four distinct characteristics. Hmm. One, I'll, I'll tell, I'll give this a list of four, then I'm going to expound a little bit on each, <laughs> sure. if I may. Sure, of course. One is growth in Christ. Number two is well-being. Number three is agency. And number four, economic self-sufficiency. Hmm. That's what, for us, thriving means. Now, growth in Christ, it talks about the fact that we want our youth and those who graduate from our program to be contributing through service. We also want them to be committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But in a deeper manner, we want them to internalize biblical truth. Hmm. And all of these can be measured, and they are being measured, so we know how we're doing and how we can adjust our program accordingly. Hmm. Number two, well-being. It talks about physical health and mental health, the ability to make the right choices, the ability to protect yourself in environments. And then the element also under well-being of self-identity, of having a sense of who you are, also having a sense of hope and resiliency. Hmm. And then agency, number three, is the, the ability to make your, their own decision, ability to influence their context. That's, that's all part of our definition of thriving that we want to see. And then finally, economic self-sufficiency, the ability to support themselves and support others, having mm -hmm. the skills that, that would allow them to have the jobs, the, the economic opportunities for themselves, their families, and their communities. And like I, like I said, each one of those can be tested, and mm -hmm. we mean it. By, we, mm -hmm. by what we say, that we want our graduates to come out as thriving followers mm -hmm. of Jesus who make a difference in their context. Wow, what a rich answer. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that, Edward. Um, can you talk a little bit about the complexity for us and for the teams that you lead of doing poverty alleviation, holistic child development, and also disaster response in the midst of overlapping crises. You know, of course, in Haiti, but also just in Latin America and the Caribbean region more broadly. Wow, that's another big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it shows the difficulty of working in development right now. And for compassion, working in places and in poverty pockets that 
shows where it is it can be so complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that part of it as it, it, it's a mixture of different elements. When you talk about the poverty that exists and then child development you're trying to do a disaster response or in crisis, well, for one, what we experience every day is the unpredictability of the environment. Mm. You know, first, you can be making plans and working in your, on your plans and you're on track, and then something comes out of nowhere <laughs> and derails you completely. You feel like you can take steps forward, and then you're taken back quite suddenly. And in places of poverty, people are impacted much, much worse. And the mm-hmm. impacts last much longer than the disaster. For instance, I mean, we're talking right now of the 2021 earthquake in Haiti. And we've already forgotten the 2010 earthquake right. or the 2016 flood or the 2018 hurricane. Hmm. But to the people who have lived those experiences, those impacts are still very present. Mm -hmm. So how do you bring that idea of child development in that context? Another point also that that makes it complex is the constant tension between disaster response or relief response Mm -hmm. and long-term development. Mm -hmm. Because while you are responding to a disaster, you want to keep in mind the the long-term impact on those people, those families. Of course, you want, when you are standing in front of a family who lost their house, who lost a loved one due to the disaster, who have lost their means of income. You want to help. You want to do everything to help. But from a developmental standpoint and perspective, you also want to keep in mind, well, I don't want to overwhelm them mm-hmm. because we do not want to build or and, and reinforce the sense of dependency. So on mm-hmm. one hand, you want to help, and they need help. But on the other hand, you have to keep in mind the long-term impact. Another mm-hmm. piece also is how do you keep your people motivated? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Right, right now, uh, in fact, I was, I was in, a, in, a, in a Zoom call earlier this week with a group of leaders in Haiti. And you could sense the weight mm-hmm. of discouragement. As you hear story after story of so-and-so who tried, you know, and they want to be faithful in the Lord, and then they get blown away, their business gets destroyed, their family mm-hmm. gets affected. How do you keep your people motivated? Mm-hmm. And for our staff, it actually takes, takes a very a, a, a vivid a choice every day because they get they get bombarded by the pressure of what they see but they also get bombarded by their relatives and families and who say you know it's time to give up it's time to drastically leave this country hmm. and it, it's it's vivid for our staff because all they have to do is actually cross the street 
and go to the Canadian embassy that is right across the street from our office. Fill out that form. And as university graduates, as members of, as the heads of families with children, they will most likely get that residency mm. paper that their family is pressuring them on. And mm. that contributes to the brain drain that we have seen in that countries like Haiti have suffered from. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was right after the earthquake, I went to the south, the southwest, with a group of compassion staff. And one of our staff was telling me, you know, my wife is telling me right now, we need to go. It's time to go. We've taken too many blows. We mm-hmm. cannot stay. So how do you motivate mm-hmm. the people? And only, and what I go back to, is the only way to maintain that commitment is through the calling, the sense of calling. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. I tell my staff. That's what I tell my own family, my own daughter, who, you know, having studied here in the U.S., decided to go back to Haiti and serve. And I had to tell her. And in fact, this week we, had, we were in that conversation. How long can she stay? And I had to remind her, you know, honey, it's not a matter of you doing it for us, for mom and dad, because, hey, our hearts are still in Haiti, me and Gina. But it's your, you have to have the sense of God's calling in your life. Mm-hmm. Because when the going gets tough, that is what you rely on, not right. on a commitment to mom and dad or hmm. to a job for that matter. So these are some of the issues that we are facing mm-hmm. regularly and we have to be mindful of. Edward, I appreciate you speaking to the relief and the development piece at Food for the Hungry. That's something that we are very aware of. And we work in the long-term development work. That's our primary work at Food for the Hungry. We also do relief work at times. And what I hear you talking about in Haiti is the constant back and forth and the exhaustion of determining, is this a relief moment? Is this a development moment? It it just does sound really quite exhausting. And Haiti is no stranger to disasters, as you mentioned. Can you tell us a little bit about what Compassion has learned from previous experiences that you are applying in current Haiti today? Well, good. Obviously, you know, we've we've been through so much, whether they are natural disasters or man-made disasters. And along the way, we have responded. And along the way, we have learned lessons that we, we hope to carry forward in this current disaster response. Well, especially I want to refer to the, the earthquake of 2010 and some of the things that we learned. One, things that, one of the things that we learned is that we want to build better and stronger, hmm. okay? And that is, that, that, that is something that fortunately we, we did in 2000, after 2010. We built buildings, schools, child development centers according to international code. And hmm. those buildings today, some of them 
are actually located in places where the 2021 earthquake hit. And those buildings are still standing, even though mm. buildings around them have fallen down. So mm, that's, that's a good lesson that we want to carry over. Mm -hmm. The second lesson, which I wish I could say that we had done as well in, but I think it's a lesson that we learned and we want to carry over, is the second one is that we want to intentionally build capacity behind. Mm -hmm. We want to leave capacity behind. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. We don't just want to, to recover. We want to increase our ability as a ministry to respond to disaster, but we especially, we want to increase the capacity of the families and children and youth that we serve. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that you have to be intentional in. Otherwise, you can be, especially in time of disaster response, you can be swept into, into the immediacy of the need, and then you forget and you overlook it. For instance, right now, we are saying that before we start building, we want to train parents and local people on new construction techniques. Hmm. We want to have a trained workforce for the future. So we are planning training sessions for masons, for carpenters, for bricklayers, for electricians, on how to build according to code. Hmm. On one hand, it will make our work easier because we will not have to constantly remind them, hey, put the right amount of cement, put the brick a certain way, put the iron bars. Yes, it is necessary to put the iron bars. We don't have to convince them on the job. Mm -hmm. But also... It will give the parents and the locals job skills for the future. Mm -hmm. You see, that is what we mean by doing disaster response with a long-term developmental perspective. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So another thing we learn is the value of partnership. You know, we cannot do everything. <laughs> You can, we can, however big you are, you cannot solve the, this big issue by yourself. So we, we partner with other organizations. And before, we try to identify what, what are the organizations on the ground and what are they doing? Some specialize in food distribution. Well, let mm -hmm. them do it. You know, for us, for instance, when immediately after the earthquake, we immediately started distributing food and water. But we soon realized that, well, there are other organizations that are doing that. Mm. Let us focus on other things. Let's partner with, with them. Mm -hmm. And finally, I mean, among the, so the many lessons, the, and the, the final one I want to mention, which is extremely important, it's the importance of local participation and ownership. Mm-hmm. You see, here again, when you, you, when you hear of a disaster, and you, of a crisis, and you go and visit, and you see around you the desolation, the destruction, the discouragement, you want to jump in and do. And you want to do for people. Mm -hmm. But one thing we learned is that, wait a minute, it's true that they are in a situation 
of crisis. But there's things that they can do. Mm-hmm. There are things that they ought to do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, maybe because of the magnitude of the the uh, disaster at the time, and partly because of our lack, the lack of preparation ourselves as a ministry, we wanted to jump in and do things for people. Mm-hmm. But this time, we we said, you know what? In fact, two days after the earthquake, we had a team on the ground, you know, helping. Of course, we wanted to bring comfort. We wanted to assess. But we also wanted to challenge our partners to say, what can you do with your hands and your muscles? Mm -hmm. Because, you see, the tendency often is, in times of disaster like this, is to wait. Wait for help to come from outside. Mm-hmm. Now, when we first when we started that conversation with some of the partners, I remember, you know, I was talking. I, I heard the testimony of this one pastor, was saying, when the compassion staff came two days after the earthquake, I took them to my the site of the church, and then we were looking at the destruction, and then he, he we started talking, and then he asked me, well, pastor, what are you going to do? What, what? How can you? What? How can you start? You know, building and clearing the land. And the pastor said, "I was mad because I told him, <laughs> don't you see the distraction? And now mm-hmm. you're telling me to what I can do? How insensitive is that?" And then he said, after the staff left, and then he started thinking, "Well, that's true. I can start clearing the land. I mm-hmm. can start doing things. That is also another lesson. Don't wait." for help to come, start doing things on your own. Mm -hmm. And how do we facilitate that? And that really honors how God has made people to be able to solve their own problems. And to me, it feels like there's such a, a, a respect and a dignity that is given when we invite people to be part of their solution. Exactly. And you should have seen the pride in the mm-hmm. eyes of that pastor as he was telling the story. this mm. And then he took us to the site, and then the site was cleared. He said, this is what we did. We contacted so-and-so, we brought in our church members, and this is what we did. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Beautiful. It's that agency part mm-hmm. of flourishing on display, mm-hmm. isn't it? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And he, again, it's the responding to the disaster with a long-term developmental perspective. Yeah. Edward, let's unpack that a little bit further. And, you know, you noted a few moments ago that the impacts last longer than the disaster. And so you're holding these learnings and these commitments to build back stronger, to build capacity, to focus on partnership, uh, to facilitate and enable local participation and ownership. So what does that look like practically for compassion and for our local church partners, particularly as we hold that commitment to long-term development? Well, you know, practically, it it, it starts with, uh, with ample conversations. And many times it takes time to actually, and we have to have the courage to challenge, gently challenge, to say, well, I hear you, but that's not exactly how we want to, to respond, is it? The second thing is having the discipline and the restraint to step back and 
ask them, you know what? This is your responsibility. And tell them, this is your responsibility. What are you bringing to the table? Mm-hmm. And then, it, 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 and that can be painful. And here again, development is painful. Development is not easy. No, it's very messy, actually. It's very messy. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes you may give the impression that you it's it's heartless, because how can you dare? How dare you talk to me about what I can bring into the table when you see the destruction? So it it has it it, it starts with a conversation. It it goes through the actions of restraint. It goes through the challenge of asking them what they bring in, and then to wait. Another piece too, Alison, is it's the patience that is required to bring about the change. And I think that's another thing that we felt in 2010. We felt the pressure to get things done, to get the buildings completed, because it had been three years, four years, you know, and the money had been there. I said, but it takes patience to actually bring them along. It's not just a sim- as simple as, well, you, you sign up with a contractor and we move on. It takes patience. Hmm. And as international organizations, sometimes there's a shortage of patience. <laughs> <laughs> And that really gets speaks to what you were talking about with the relief piece, because relief can be fast. Development is long. Exactly. And takes exactly. patience. Edward, you've mentioned a few times the work of compassion with churches. Can you speak to why is it that compassion chooses specifically to work with local churches? Well, you know... Uh, the choice of working with the local church is a clear and easy one for us. Hmm. <laughs> because on, on several accounts, okay? First, you know, uh, in the in development world, an activity you do in development needs to be grounded in local reality and local context. Otherwise, hmm. it does not have it doesn't last. It doesn't have much impact. You cannot fly in development and deliver it and drop it. Mm-hmm. So by definition, the local church now and historically is as close as can be in every corner of the back roads of our communities, of our countries, you will find a local church. And the local church by this very proximity they know the people. They uh, live with those people. So for proximity sake and grounded in the context, it makes clear sense. But also because we share a common set of values, okay, we can expect the church to, to hold values of integrity, you know, following God, fear of God, hmm. and doing what is right. We don't have to build that. That's the foundation. And then we have a common faith in Jesus, okay, that we can always go back to as our motivation, as our source of fear, and as our source of this is how how we act. Now, having said that, I also want to recognize that the church is not necessarily a perfect institution. 
<laughs> I don't want to just you know paint the picture that it's all rosy. It's not. You and I, you know that it's not. You have issues of resourcefulness. They are under-resourced, the financially, technologically, or in leadership. Or you also have issues of some church traditions that may actually be more challenging to work. I mean, mm. you have a church tradition where the pastor is the know-all, do-all. He is the pastor, he's the head of the committee, he's the part, he wants to be the project director. How do you work with that? Mm. You have denominations that don't recognize women leadership. How do you work with that? Or some denominations that don't encourage transparency. So we have those issues, but we still believe that the church is the best partner on the ground for mm. us to do. And the fact mm. also that we have that deep belief that the church is the agent of God for transformation. Mm -hmm. And that is what gives us hope, especially in the context of Haiti. And I could mm. talk more about that, but definitely the church being the best partner for us. Amen. Thanks, Edvard, for sharing your heart on that. You know, speaking of the local church in Haiti and in relation to the earthquake and uh, the long-term developmental efforts uh, that our frontline church partners are continuing to engage in, what are the central needs that they are facing right now and in the months to come? Like the top, you know, two or three things. Yes. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, there are some immediate needs and we want to ask Christians around the world to be praying for Haiti and the church and the families. We want to, we, I mean, at this immediate need, I say, so it's courage in leadership of churches. You know, we are seeing a wave of discouragement in Haiti in general and throughout the church as well. How do you lead? How do you, as a pastor, and I've stood in that role, as a pastor, your heart is already sinking with discouragement. How do you stand and encourage and preach a message of hope? Mm -hmm. So uh, praying for, for a, 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 a leadership, encourage in leadership, okay? And we, 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 you know, for me, I try to encourage where through the sense of calling, through the sense of, ex through the sense of examples of other leaders who have worked like Adoniram Johnson, who have worked years and years, I haven't seen the fruit, and yet God blessed their, their, their efforts. But on the long term, okay, I also want the church, and I see the need, the, the need for the church to see the opportunity for the church right now. The opportunity for the church to have a strong voice for what is right. Hmm. Oftentimes, we talk about Haiti in the context of, you know, the religious background of voodoo and other stereotypes. However, the reality is that in Haiti, at least 52% of the population self-identify as Protestant. Let that sink in for a while. Mm -hmm. Let's say that half of them are truly Christ followers. Just imagine what can be done through the church, by the church, in order to transform society. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, our churches in Haiti have traditionally 
held in kind of isolationist position as to, well, you know, we worry about what happens in the four, within the four walls of the church. The world, this world is not my own. I'm just a passing through. Anything that is social or political is seen as evil. We want to wake up the church as an agent of transformation by bringing the gospel that transforms hearts, but also developing disciples who can live within the church and outside of the church, on the pulpit and in the marketplace. Hmm. And that is the dream for us. And that's what keeps me motivated to keep investing in the church in Haiti, because mm -hmm. that's where the hope lies. Beautiful. That is beautiful. And for uh, your listeners, Shalane, who are feeling a prompting to respond in some mm -hmm. practical way, first, I agree, Edward, uh, join us in prayer for our frontline church partners and all the children and families and communities that we serve. On a practical level, you can go to our website, compassion.ca, and find our uh, Haiti disaster relief efforts, and you can donate there to provide uh, provision of emergency supplies, medical care, trauma counseling, and as Edward talked about, the rebuilding of homes, churches, and other infrastructure. You can also find uh, a child to sponsor so they can be known, loved, protected, and have the opportunity to flourish holistically in all areas of life. And you can check out ways to sponsor a child there. So Edward, thank you so much uh, for your heart, for your mind, mm -hmm. and for all that you're doing in coming alongside our churches in this season. Mm -hmm. well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and mm -hmm. may God bless you. Yes, I echo Allison's thanks, Edward. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful picture to be able to um, receive that encouragement to know what is happening in Haiti, because so often we hear just of the destruction and the despair, and yet what I've heard today is hope. And so I really appreciate you um, taking time to be with us and to share with us. And I would just say to our listeners, I suspect you may have questions. Please feel free to email us at podcast at fhcanada.org so we can continue this conversation. And Allison, thank you for being our first official co-host. Appreciate you taking the time to be here. And we will continue to work together. There's so much overlap in the approach that Compassion and Food for the Hungry have. It's not a surprise to me that we continue to find ways to connect and collaborate on these really, really important conversations and topics. So thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you both. Thank you. God bless you. To explore what your next steps could be, or find out more about Compassion Canada and what other Canadians are doing about poverty, start by checking out fhcanada.org resources.